Um, we want to welcome Pastor Laren Zorhoff to the pulpit now. He's going to give us our message today. Pastor Laren and I go a ways back. Um, I actually was a chairperson on the committee that um, was searching for a new pastor for ch uh, First Church years ago, and I interviewed Laren on the phone. That's the first time I ever talked to him. And then, of course, we interviewed him in person and got to know him really well. And uh, so I got to know Laren that way, but probably the funnest way I got to, to know Laren was he and I both uh, um, were sponsors of the Covenant Christian golf team. Do you remember that, Laren? So we, a couple times a week for several years during the, the spring months, would go out and walk uh, nine holes with the high school kids, and it was a lot of fun. Laren's a great guy, and we're happy to have him here. So welcome, Laren. Thank you, Rob. It's uh, good to be with you, to worship with you. As you well know, uh, Hope Community in Lowell is the newest uh, congregation in Classes, Ileana, and it's always been a joy to uh, gather with you to worship, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, share in this time of worship with you again today. Today we're going to be looking at an amazing character whose life is described in the Bible by the name of Peter. If you uh, would like to follow along, I'm going to be reading a couple passages uh, from Luke 22, first of all from 31 to 34, and then from 54 to 62. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then at verse 54 and following, then they seized him and led him away. This is about Jesus, bringing Jesus into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interview about, of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, today we're going to meet Peter. 
He is one of the prominent figures in the Bible. His life falls conveniently into three categories. There is Peter the disciple, there is Peter the apostle, and there is Peter the martyr. Occasional references to Peter's original name, Simeon, show that he belonged to a Jewish community. His home was in Galilee at Bethsaida, this town on the east bank of the Jordan River where it flows into the Sea of Galilee was both Jewish in culture and religion, but also a cosmopolitan community. Peter's brother, Andrew, and Philip also came from Bethsaida, and they bear Greek names. This bilingual setting arising from Greek culture is one of the reasons why Simon, the Greek version of Simeon, became his nickname. Peter was was married at some point in his life, and the Bible tells us that he took his wife on a mission trip to Corinth. There is a reference to that in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, where apparently his wife was well known. Peter's trade, both at Bethsaida and at Capernaum, a port on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, was that of a fisherman. Some preachers and writers like to minimize Peter's cultural attainments, but that unfortunately is not accurate. When Peter and John are referred to as common, uneducated men in Acts 4, verse 13, that is simply a reference to the fact that they were not aware of the finer points of the rabbinic interpretation of the Jewish Torah. It does not mean that they were not educated. Peter's exposure to Hellenistic culture in Bethsaida is a counterbalancing awareness of the fact that Peter was well acquainted with the society and culture in which he lived. His native language was one that he spoke with a recognizable accent that let other people know that he came from Galilee. Both Peter and his brother Andrew were followers of John the Baptist, as were a number of the other disciples who became followers of Jesus as well. The Gospel according to John tells us how Peter was called to be a disciple of Jesus. We read about that in John 1, verses 40 to 42. It is Andrew who brings Peter to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Peter. In both the Aramaic and Greek, the word Peter, the name Peter, refers to a stone or a rock. This was to be a new name symbolizing the fact that Peter was a stone or a rock in regard to his relationship to Jesus Christ as his Lord. He would be a new man, a man that can be counted on to be loyal and trustworthy and faithful for the most part. But as we know, he did not always measure up to that name. There were times when he fell short, where he even denied his Lord but it does anticipate the great apostolic calling and responsibility that was going to be laid upon this man. His name is Peter. He was the rock man. 
Peter was part of Jesus' inner sanctum, that small group of disciples that Jesus relied upon and invited into special times of prayer and communion with him. Their names are Peter, James, and John. And when you find the listing of the disciples, it's interesting to notice that Peter is always the one who is named first. I love the fact that the New Testament writers always describe these disciples in human terms. They let us see these people for who they really were. Not only their qualities and characteristics that can be elevated to prominence, but also those areas where they fall short and don't measure up to the calling that is theirs. Peter tried pressing on Jesus the role of a popular teacher. At Caesarea Philippi, you remember that Jesus receives Peter's confession of his messiahship with a certain reservation and announces that Peter's subsequent objection to Jesus' death is actually the work of Satan. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was a bit hesitant when Peter suggested that they set up three thrones, three booths, which was a way of saying that perhaps some other way could be gained than the way of the cross, a way of referring to some kind of a nationalistic triumph rather than the messianic glory that can only come through the atoning death of the Savior at Calvary. Although close to Jesus, Peter in those early years was also one who showed his feelings and his shortcomings. You remember that time on the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells the story about how Peter walked on the water to Jesus. It seemed like everything was going fine, but then Peter took his eyes off Jesus. He began to look down at the waves, and, and his faith faltered, and he began to sink. It shows that he was human. But at the same time, you have to give Peter credit for at least attempting to walk on the water. He didn't stay in the boat like the other disciples. He attempted to follow the command of Jesus and walk, and he was successful as long as he kept his eyes fixed on the master. His role is that of a spokesman for the twelve, no more and no less. Although referred to as Peter much earlier, it is only in the post-resurrection appearances of our Lord that we see Peter's real character begin to come true. Then we see him as the rock man, the solid man upon whom the church was going to be built. It was after Pentecost that Peter became the leader of the Jerusalem church. You remember that time at Pentecost when Peter preached that tremendous sermon and and thousands of people responded to that message and were saved as a consequence of his telling the story of Jesus' saving work. Peter made a major contribution in the life of the early Christian church. In fact, you could say that he was the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. And while the Bible does not recount the story of Peter's death, according to church tradition, Peter entered his life as a martyr, crucified head down out of obedience to the Lord he had once denied. 
Peter is a very prominent character throughout the New Testament. It would be impossible for us to catalog all of the references that we find to Jesus in the Gospels or in the story of the early Christian church as we find it in the book of Acts. But for our purposes today, I want to direct your attention to a well-known, well-rehearsed story that shows Peter as a well-intentioned but nevertheless flawed human being. We have already read that story from Luke chapter 22. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter wasn't ready for that comment. That's not what he intended to hear from Jesus. Eager, bursting with energy and enthusiasm, he declared his readiness to follow the Lord wherever that might go, whatever that might mean. If it meant prison or if it meant death, he was willing to do what was necessary as a loyal follower of the Lord Jesus. Imagine the feelings that Peter must have had when he heard Jesus say to him, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. How could that be? Peter was absolutely dumbfounded at this statement that Jesus made concerning him. Later that evening, you recall how Jesus took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and he asked them to pray for him. And then he took Peter, James, and John into a more secluded part of that garden and asked them to pray with him. And then Jesus went alone to a more secluded part. And three times he came back to his disciples only to find them sound asleep. What happened next? You remember how Judas came to that garden of Gethsemane. Judas came with a group of soldiers who had come for the purpose of arresting Jesus. And Judas wanted to identify who Jesus was, and so he walked up to him and embraced him and gave him a kiss, first on one cheek and on the other, in that way identifying who Jesus was and betraying the master with a kiss. How did Peter react to that? You remember how he grabbed his sword and began to, 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 to throw it wildly in the air, and, and in the process of doing so, he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus demanded no more of that. And he reached, reached out his hand and touched the ear of the, of the servant, and the ear was healed. And then Jesus surrendered himself into the hands of his captors. And we see Peter following at a distance. We watch Peter during the rest of that cold Jerusalem night. The religious trial takes place at the house of Caiaphas. And Peter joins a group of people who are warming themselves out around a fire in the courtyard, trying to stay warm. And as they are doing so, one of the servant girls comes up to Peter and said, you also are a follower of Jesus. 
Peter responded by saying, Woman, I don't know him at all. A little later on, another one came up to him and said, You are also one of them. And Peter responded by saying, Man, I am not. And then about an hour later, another person came up and said, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. You can tell by the way he talks. And Peter declared, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. And it was at that very moment that the rooster crowed. And Jesus looked at Peter, and their eyes met. And Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you are going to deny three times that you know me. And the historian Luke records, and he went out and wept bitterly. In spite of all the warnings of Jesus, we see Peter doing precisely what Jesus predicted he was going to do. And we see that desperate man as a microcosm of ourselves. Because after all, can't we all say the same thing about ourselves? The good things that we want to do, we don't always do. And the evil things that we don't want to do, that is why we sometimes find ourselves doing them. Each of us is a sinner. Each of us needs God's love and God's forgiveness. Each of us needs to look into the face of that one who is hanging there on that cross, looking down at the people around that cross and praying for them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as we face communion next week Sunday, it's important for us to take that attitude of repentance, acknowledging the fact that the good we should do, we don't always do. And the evil that we don't want to do, that is what we sometimes find ourselves doing. And what does Peter go on to show us? Try to make sense out of this by putting this to Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. These words of our Lord Jesus. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Encapsulated in those verses are five truths simply stated that I would like to share with you today. These truths can transform our understanding of who we are and the spiritual struggles that we face. Truth number one, Satan has an, an intense desire to destroy every Christian. Satan wanted to destroy Peter. Satan is especially interested in destroying those people who are closest to the Lord. Jesus alerted Peter to the fact that Satan was out to get him. It would be a joy for Satan to see Peter stumble and fall, and it would be a joy for Satan to see you stumble and fall 
in some area of your life as well. If he can't destroy you, he would at least like to molest you, to seduce you into a time of disillusionment and estrangement from the Lord, or at the very least, to rob you of the quiet and the joy and the peace and the, the assurance that God wants each of us as his children to have. Truth number two. Satan is permitted to test your mettle. I think it would be frustrating to be Satan. God has allowed Satan the opportunity to do certain things, but there are parameters within which he must function. He can do certain things, but he can't do other things. God has put limits on what Satan is allowed to do. And in fact, God actually uses Satan in order to accomplish his purpose. He refers to it in this particular passage by referring to an agricultural theme. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. The picture is of a thrashing floor. In that day, the farmer would take the wheat and throw it up into the air so that the wind would blow the lighter chaff away and the heavier kernels of grain would fall back down to the floor. Sometimes Satan's temptations are allowed to sift us for ourselves, to strengthen us so that we can see who we really are, so that we can know our weaknesses and our frailties and depend upon God for guidance and direction. It may be the tough experience of a financial crisis or the deathly disease of someone who is very close to us, a member of our family or one of our close friends. Or it could be an estrangement that takes place between you and someone that you trusted to be there for you. Those difficulties and test us and try us. Now remember that God is never the author of evil, but God does permit Satan to test us, to sift us like wheat. And what Satan does as a temptation designed to destroy us is something that God can use to purify us, to strengthen us, to help us to grow and mature in our faith if we appropriate the resources that God has given and made available to us. Sometimes God allows Satan to sift us not just for ourselves, but for the sake of other people. Maybe the prime example of that in the Bible is Job. You remember how Satan tested Job in a variety of ways, the chief of which was the loss of his children. But many other calamities came upon him. And we can read his story in the book of Job, and we can benefit from that story as we see how Job relied upon God through the trials and difficulties and how God's blessing came upon him as that book of Job comes to a close. Job's biography can be a great encouragement to you and to me. Even the temptation of Jesus as recounted for us in the Gospels is a way in which we can be encouraged and strengthened in our faith 
as we see how Jesus faced temptation and how God promises to be with us when temptation comes our way. And then take the example in contemporary times of Johnny Erickson Tata. You know her story well because she's been telling that story for many years now. And that story of how God tested her and tried her as she became a paraplegic through a swimming accident. And how she's used that testimony of God's grace to be a witness and a testimony to many people through the years. You and I can take encouragement from her. And she tells us that if God simply stripped away from Christians all of the trials and all of the difficulties and all of the problems that we face, what kind of witness would we be able to share? It is only when we learn how to handle those difficulties and those trials with the help and grace of God that our life can be a tremendous testimony to God's work of grace in our lives. Peter's own uh, temporary lapse, in spite of his determination to be faithful to the Lord, brings nothing but encouragement to me as I struggle to be faithful to the Lord in the position where he has placed me. The sifting that I go through can be encouraging to the people around me. And the sifting that you go through can be encouraging to the people around you. They can learn from you as they see how you react to the trials and the difficulties that God allows to enter into your lives. God's grace is there to sustain you. The sifting you go through can be encouraging to you and to others when you claim the help of the Lord. That help may be the encouragement to keep you from falling or that help may be the forgiveness that you need when you do actually stumble and fall. Truth number three, Jesus is praying for you that your faith will not fail. That's right, Jesus says this to Peter, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And he is prepared to follow through on you. The prayers of other believers are wonderful and encouraging, and we need to pray for each other to encourage each other in the Christian faith. That's what, why we gather together for our prayer meetings, to lift up the needs of one another in prayer before our God, because there is power in prayer, and we are instructed to pray for those around us. How special it is, however, to know that in addition to that, Jesus himself is praying for us. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you. And Jesus right now is at the right hand of our Father in heaven, and he is praying for you and for me because he knows the needs and the circumstances that we're facing, and he lifts those needs in prayer before God's throne. And the Holy Spirit himself prays for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. What a blessing it is to know that our triune God is praying for us. Let me tell you what his prayer for you is. It is that your faith will not fail. If your faith fails, then everything else fails as well. 
Because it is faith that gives you the courage that you need to face the challenges that come your way. It is faith that is the source of the patience you need to go through whatever it is you may be going through right now. It is faith that gives you hope in the midst of adversity. It is faith that gives you joy in the midst of the sorrow and the difficulties that you are called upon to face. For God's sake and for yours, don't begin to doubt simply because trials come your way, simply because you are being tempted. Let's not be surprised when temptations come. Truth number four, you are privileged to turn back to Jesus. A comeback is a big thing in athletic games. We like to see a team far behind come back in the end and and win the game and take control of things. But a comeback is even greater in the spiritual life. There may be someone here this morning who needs to come to Jesus for the very first time. There may be someone else who needs to come back to Jesus. Someone who has been drifting away from Jesus. Sometimes we talk about backsliding. And even if you're not backsliding, if you're just moving sideways, you are not moving forward. You are not growing and maturing the way you would like to. If you're not moving forward, you are losing ground. And that may be evident in your lifestyle, in the things that you find yourself doing, the associations that you have that are not always helpful and beneficial for you, your attendance at worship, your your exposure to devotional life, the Christian friends that are of help and encouragement to you are not always as prominent in your life as they should be. Your soul is in the process of decaying. You have lost your first love. That intensity of, of devotion for the master is not where it once was. You are experiencing what Peter experienced when he got away from the Savior, close to the fire, with those people who were warming themselves as ambassadors of the high priest or as the soldiers who had been responsible for coming to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. God is speaking to you today. The truth is that God's children are never happy when they leave the Father. Peter wasn't. The Bible tells us that he wept, and he wept bitterly. At this moment, we need to remind ourselves of what Jesus said to him prior to his denial. Jesus said, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, did you catch that? When you have turned back. Peter did what Judas didn't. Judas went out and wept bitterly, but he ended his life in that suicidal despair. Peter, on the the other hand, wept bitterly and then turned back to the Savior. Later on, we read in the Gospels how Peter heard the story from the women that 
they had gone to the tomb where Jesus had been placed after his crucifixion, and they discovered that the grave was empty, that Jesus was no longer there. And, and Peter had to see for himself, and so Peter and John went running to the tomb for a firsthand look at what the women had mentioned to them. And there he saw the strips of linen, and he wondered what had happened. And the next time we see Peter, he is in the upper room with the 11 disciples, Judas missing. Apparently, Jesus had already appeared to Peter individually. And now he appeared to the disciples gathered together. Peter humbled himself enough to come back to the Savior who offers true life. Truth number five. Others can learn from you. Jesus said, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's no greater witness than someone who humbly comes back to the Savior. Peter didn't just come back. He devoted his life with all of the opportunities and talents that he had to the service of Jesus. He wanted to do whatever he could to magnify the name of the Lord Jesus, to proclaim the good news of salvation that is available to Jesus. He did that on Pentecost, and in the days that followed, he became a leader within the Christian church. And while the Bible does not tell us the story about Peter's death, according to Christian tradition, Peter ended his life as a martyr. Peter the betrayer became Peter the rock man. And that same Peter, that same tradition tells us that at his request, Peter was crucified upside down because he did not feel he was worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified. You and I, like Peter, can sound the warning of what happens when you drift away from Jesus. You and I can express our gratitude to God for what he has done by helping others, realizing that grace neither begins nor ends with ourself. You and I can describe the joy of restoration for the Father who is a waiting Father and who delights to see his prodigal son or daughter come home. There is hope for all of us. The best of us, the worst of us, and the rest of us. If you have fallen, he can pick you up again. If you are broken, he can make you whole again. If you have failed, he can make you useful again. If you have lost your courage, he can give it back to you again. Take heart and believe the good news. If Jesus did it for Peter, he can also do it for you. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Peter, for the lessons that we can learn as we examine his life and his testimony, how he decided to follow Jesus and to devote himself to the service of the Master, but there were times along the way when he stumbled and fell and even when his master was being tried before his crucifixion, Peter denied him three times. Thank you for his testimony of sorrow and regret as he mourned the mistakes and the failures of his life and repented and, and turned back to the Savior and became a rock man, a solid man, upon whom the early Christian church was established and built. Thank you for the lessons we can learn from his example. Help us to follow him in that way by acknowledging our faults and our failures, by receiving your help and your grace, and by rededicating ourselves to being the people you have called us to be because we know that if you can do something like that for Peter you can do that for us too we pray it in Jesus name Amen <laughs>